Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It is my honor and privilege to have as our guest today, Sean Morgan. He is the founder of The Ascent Leader. He's also been a leadership coach and executive pastor. And I had an opportunity to listen to a webinar that Sean did not all that long ago, sponsored by Christianity Today and Preaching Today, and was just really wowed by his insight. So Sean, thank you so much for giving your time and your energy to us today. Steve, it was such an honor to be connected with you through that Preaching Today webinar, and uh, even more so to be able to come on the podcast with you. Thanks for asking. Sean, if you could take just a thumbnail, a half a minute, and give our listeners an overview of Ascent Leader. What is it? How'd you get started? How's it work? It's an organization that helps grow and develop leaders through what we would call relational leadership development, which we choose the cohort model, which means um, physically getting on an airplane and traveling to be with a small cohort of around seven, eight, nine leaders and journeying for a year together around a very specific topic. And so we help transitions leaders, we help biblical communicators and preachers. We help executive pastors and we help church planters um, so that you kind of have to fall in one of those buckets. We pair you up with six to nine peers, like I said, and then you journey and grow together relationally. And the content, the depth of the content comes out of those relationships. Sean, in the webinar, you were talking about just some, some basic principles that you would encourage pastors who are in transition mm-hmm. to follow as they kind of navigate their, their shifting vocational landscape. There are a lot of congregants, just average church attenders who are minding their own business and then are just getting hit by these, these seemingly rogue waves of change. How are you seeing pastoral transition play out in the American church these days? Are, are, we, really, are we really seeing more churn than we did two or three years ago? Is, is, that, a, is that a real shift or is that just a, an illusion? No, it is a a real shift. We are seeing more pastoral turnover in churches in in America, and it's probably true beyond, but uh, mostly I know North America, U.S. and Canada, we are seeing a lot more churn than we have ever before. And uh, we conducted some Barna research a couple of years ago, and it's basically uh, looking into the future where for the next decade, the average age of pastors is well over 55 now. And so if you look over the next decade, plan retirements in the age 65 to 67 range would mean that nearly half or maybe even potentially over half the churches in America will go through a planned leadership transition in a church. And that doesn't talk about unplanned. So um, it's definitely happening now more than we've seen in the past and is projected to even pick up as we look into the future. So Sean, it sounds like this isn't, this isn't unique to the great resignation, or this isn't necessarily COVID related. This is part of a larger demographic shift that, that we should have been able to anticipate if we were paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. And there were some people out there paying attention. There are some, some people that I follow and um, in just even the need that I saw early on, I think there's some great books on transition out there, but most of them focus on succession planning. How do you plan for your current pastor to be an outgoing pastor and there to be an incoming pastor who comes in and guides the church from a you know, clergy ministerial standpoint, from a leadership standpoint and a management standpoint. As I look at those two things, most of the energy was on planning for transition. 
And there have been a lot of very good books, a lot of strong authorities written, um, or sorry, uh, writing about that. And so what we decided to focus our work on about seven years ago was helping the after the baton pass types of leadership, Mm -hmm. not just the planning for like, yeah, in three or four years, this is going to happen. But now that it's happened, how are we stewarding the influence that we have at whatever level, the congregant level, the lay level, the volunteer level, all the way up to the senior leader level, so that a leadership change turns into the opportunity to advance the mission of the local church. Sean, how do you see those unplanned transitions uh, being different from planned transitions? Yeah, I think the biggest thing would be probably um, the fear anxiety factor when something has short notice is higher. I think it fear and anxiety are natural when we talk about pending change. But when your pastor says, and, and you all know like, oh, our pastor's getting older. Like, yeah, we, we all know he's been here for 30 plus years and started this church in his twenties or blah, blah, blah. And you know, at some point, he might not be, or even in um, more and more, we're seeing um, women planters and women lead pastors. He or she might not be here uh, in 10 years. But it's one thing to basically pause and recognize that and think we're five years away, we're seven years away, we're 10 years away. It's another thing to have something talked about and go, we're five weeks away. <laughs> right, right. I have a couple of friends locally, Sean, whose pastors gave, you know, four weeks or maybe even two weeks notice. Yeah. And that that's, again, certainly not ideal. But once once it's happening, you can't unhappen it. It, it is it is what it is. What do you what do you say to people who are in that stage right now where they feel just kind of wildly disoriented or, or maybe pretty anxious because the, the leader that they know and love and trusted is making a, a rapid exit and they're they're just not sure what it means for them or for the community that they love? Well, the first thing for me is empathy, that the feelings they have are very real and they make sense. This is somebody who has been helping you with your soul for eternity. They're expositing the word of God, you know, more or less on a weekly basis. They're there with you in some of life's highs and lows in moments. I would say the first thing is just to embrace the emotion of um, questionable um, certainty, like, what is this going to be like? You don't have mm-hmm. to answer that question, but you can marinate in it. And I think the other thing is, is, is to recognize that you can feel uncertainty, but it doesn't have to lead to anxiety. Okay. Um, so I'll say that again, embrace the uncertainty and the unquestionable side of, of that, that I just don't know what this is going to be like. Um, but don't let it creep into anxiety. And Sean, what do you say to those people who maybe their pastor leaves quickly or unexpectedly and what they were hoping was a a three month search turns into a six month or a nine month or an 18 month search. What what do you say to people who are feeling fatigue in that uncertainty? Well, I think part of what brings confidence as you embrace the uncertainty and you don't try to repress it, I think it's important to be confident in who's really in charge. Hmm. Um, And I'm not talking about 
the committee that's been formed to oversee the transition or the elders or maybe a district superintendent with denominations. I'm talking about this is Christ's church. And he's not surprised. You may have been, um, but he's not. So take heart, right? I have overcome the world. (laughs) And take heart that this is a very real thing you're going through. It may come as a surprise to you, but it's not a surprise to God. And throughout history, the church has grown through hardship. Any historian, there's a book that actually N.T. Wright recommended to me that really goes through the history of the church. And we can talk about that. I think it's written by Rodney Stark. And um, one thing is for sure, when we would have the most cause to concern from our human perspective, God is on the move. Read the book of Esther. There's a lot to be concerned with when you read the first part of that story. I think it's 12 chapters, but it ends well, and we can take heart. John, I love that you mentioned Esther. I guess I hadn't realized this the first 19 times I heard the story, but if my math is correct, I think between Esther, when she was appointed queen and when she actually intervened for her people, the span of that was like four and a half years. I was always reading kind of the microwave, the children's Bible version of that. You know, she, she's crowned queen, and then the next day she saves her people. That's not how it worked at all. No, it isn't. And and you're, you're right. There's some subtleties, I think, in, you know, chapter... Um, well, in chapter one, it talks about the reign of, of the king. And it says like, you know, he's throwing this party in the fourth year of his reign. And then you read on and these things happen with Esther. And I think from Queen Vashti being dismissed and Esther becoming queen was four years. And then I think it's another four or five years, like you mentioned, from the time she was queen to the time she engages on behalf um, of a nation, um, really on, on, on behalf of Mordecai and, and on behalf of God. So there's something amazing about reading through that. God's name is not on any chapter, on any mm. page in Esther, but he's actually in every verse. Right, right. That's so good. And Sean, I think that just even that illustration reminds me that God doesn't, God isn't looking to solve for comfort in our life. He's looking to solve for transformation. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes the ways through which God chooses to transform me or my family or the church that I'm a part of are not something that I would have chosen in a million years. It doesn't mean that they aren't good and that they aren't right. And that in time, the, they'll, they'll make sense and they'll be beautiful in hindsight. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, who would look back on their life saying, I've grown the most in my life from periods of calm, peacefulness, um, and just kind of laid back times. Like I grew the most when I was on a beach, you know, uh, having a vacation, or do you look back and go, wow, I didn't ask to be stretched in that way, but that season, which I would never have asked for helped me because I trusted God and was willing to change, willing to, to grow through change helped him become a better person. I think it's Billy Graham's wife who has something like the epitaph on her tombstone that says training complete. Hmm. What a great mindset, right? What a, what a great mindset that adversity are opportunities along our path of training. And anybody who's been in the military, I'm getting ready to retire in four weeks from a 26 year career as an air force reservist. And, you know, you start out the military in basic training and you go through a lot of rigorous 
training. Obviously, there's a, a lot in the news since um, the Na SEAL Team 6 um, stuff with bin Laden. And everybody knows about the Navy SEALs, but they also know about the training that the Navy SEALs go to and the high sure. washout rate. And, you know, it's a crucible mindset with that. But I would say from a congregant perspective, if you're in a church and you're approaching the leadership change, um, the best thing you can do is um, think about the windshield of your car and the rearview mirror of your car. When you're driving down the highway, how much time do you spend in your rearview mirror? And I would argue, I don't know if it just happened over time or engineers engineered it, the windshield is much bigger than your rearview mirror. And it's roughly in proportion to the amount of time you spend looking forward versus backward. And actually, if you measure the square inches of your rear view mirror and you measure the square inches of your windshield, your, your windshield in your car, and all cars are different, but it's, it's going to be between 100 and 140 times bigger than wow. your rear view mirror. And so when you approach, use this as a metaphor, as, when you, as a congregant, when you approach a transition and you have unknowns, be open to the possibility of looking forward and finding things looking forward where your church will reach more people than it did five years ago, three years ago, two years ago. Your church will be on mission in more relevant ways to the people in the surrounding geographical community of your church. Churches have to change. If we don't change, churches die and church planters plant and God does a new thing with new leadership and new churches. We've seen that over time. There's not a single church that I'm aware of in the New Testament that is gathering today. And so are we okay with that renewal in our own church for the sake of the gospel reaching what we would define as our spiritual kids and grandkids that maybe we don't know yet? And that's the kind of mindset, the wind shield being full of possibility and the rearview mirror being something we want to celebrate and honor, but what's ahead has to be something we're driving toward. And are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust new leadership? Are we going to embrace change? Look, I, you know, I like the 7 a.m. service at my church and now it's going away and the early service is going to be at 8.30. Well, that's an adjustment, but if your leadership believe it's going to help reach people for the sake of the gospel, uh, for the Great Commission, could you do something different with your Sunday morning between the hours of 7 and 8.30 and show up for the first service at 8.30? It's crazy to talk about because it seems so simple, but the truth is things like that cause a lot of division. Relatively minor things cause a lot of division if we're looking in the rearview mirror. That's a great insight, and I appreciate you sharing it. Every once in a while, I have an opportunity to do a a two month or a six month run as an interim preacher at a congregation. And one of the things that I learned was a lot of times the knee jerk reaction is, Hey, the, our, our first priority is to find a new person who can get in here and tell us which way to go. And I was with the church and they said, Hey, come and preach for three months. And it, it turned into nine months. And one of the things we kept trying to remind each other was our first priority is to discern who it is that God wants us to be as a congregation in this season. And mm -hmm. if we do that, well, we've got a better chance of landing a person who can fit into our culture rather than everybody just sitting on their hands and waiting for somebody to kind of dictate terms, which when you really think about it, isn't something that a leader wants and a congregation really wants anyway. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, all I can say to that is yes. And amen. I think, you know, that's the voice of experience and wisdom right there. Sean, in your experience working with leaders and churches and boards and transition, what are, what are some of those lessons that you have seen God teach churches in those transition seasons that they, they might not have learned in any other window? Hmm. Again, refocusing, there's a statement. I usually, if I don't know who the quote is from, I usually say Andy Stanley and it's usually right, but I think it's, um, are we em- embracing the methods over the mission or the mission yeah. over the methods? And the, the truth is, is that we're human. So please hear me. I'm not casting stones at, at anybody. Cause what I'm saying is, is we all have a tendency to get tied to the methods, the programs, the things. Um, so I think one of the best lessons in the process of leadership change is to learn how to organically take risks so that we stay on mission. And that's actually a readiness question um, for change. Obviously, when you're planning for succession, you can look at and ask some questions about the culture in the organizations. And if the organizations are already doing things to make adjustments to their strategy, to their plans and programs, so that they're, they stay on mission, then they have a higher readiness factor in a transition. And so I think that's one of the biggest lessons learned is, and unfortunately it's often learned the hard way is people cling to the methods, they resist and fight um, bitterly sometimes change that maybe five years from now, even three years from now, they'll look back and go, actually, that was a good change. I didn't see it on the front end. And so um, that can be one of the best things for a church because the process of renewal is what ensures effective mission accomplishment, right? Jesus did not tell us, there's a whole lot of things we wish were in the gospel that could tell us how churches should be run today. And they're not, right? We have prescription and description. There's not a lot of prescription. Um, Jesus's words were to go and make disciples. And so at the end of the day, if we're clinging to anything, plans, programs, um, and methods that are inhibiting our ability to move forward with our mission, we have to be willing to let go of those things. And I think that churches that handle transition or learn through transition and have a brighter future are ones that either already know how to do that, they were, they were well-led to take risks for the sake of their mission, or in transition, they learn how to do it. They figure it out and say, you know what, this isn't what I would want to do for me, but it's, I'm willing to do it. It's something we all should be willing to take risks for because we believe it will be effective. It's like a lot of grandparents do things with their grandkids that they don't do on their own, but they do it, right? They open up their pocketbook and they pay for it. They carve out the time and energy and they do it with their grandkids, not because that elderly grandparent loves doing that and does it every day on their own, but because they love their grandchild. And I think that's how we have to be at churches. This isn't about what we love. We have to be willing to fuel with our time, talent, energy, all those things and our money 
things that are going to help us be more effective. So the best transitions are when churches are prepared culturally for that and when they adapt and learn along the way how to do that well. That's great. Sean, even as you're saying that, I'm thinking about my 83-year-old mother who was just a master note writer. She would write handwritten notes for everything. But when she had grandkids, and now I think there's up to 17, she's she's teaching herself Instagram. Uh, not mm-hmm. because it's natural to her, not because it's necessarily fun for her, but because that's their primary uh, means of, of communication and connection. And so it's it's fun to be able to put, put a face uh, with that particular illustration. Oh, good for her. Yeah, that's neat. So, Sean, when you were teaching the webinar for preaching today, you indicated that your sense expertise a lot oftentimes is coming with churches after they have named a new leader. So there are firms that are search firms, they do succession right. planning, they help place somebody. And, 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 and if I heard you correctly, it seems like you indicated that a healthy church could do a healthy transition and find a healthy leader in all the right ways. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all perfectly blissful, smooth sailing once that person is installed. What are, what are some of the ch- just normal, natural challenges that people can expect when, when a new leader is installed, even if they're excited to be there and everybody's happy that they're there? Yeah. Well, I think that we have to give a lot of grace across the board. You know, if, if there's a successful ingredient for transitions, that is one of them. If not, the most important one is to give a lot of grace. Um, like I said, there are going to be uh, just a ton of variety of emotions that people have. And so giving a lot of grace with that. But then as, as things gel and the organization begins to set a new trajectory and realign around that, it's going to involve things like reshaping the org chart, um, redoing some of the things on the budget, like things that you might not be doing now, you might want to create some financial margin to fund going forward. That might mean somebody else um, gets less money in their uh, area of the budget. And so you can't think in terms of fiefdoms, you have to think of mission accomplishment as a, as a, as a whole. And we're all just the sum, a whole as a church is the sum of its parts. And so if we can be more effective um, then we want to be able to adapt and do those things. Um, that can be difficult, right? If um, I, I don't even know uh, what, what some good examples would be, but if you love something that gets defunded or less funded next year, that just, that can be hard. Um, so recognize how you're feeling, you know, probably um, pray about it for a while, like, like ponder it. You don't have to vent first, Um and, and just really come to the ultimate um, question in that is, could I get behind this if it helps this church grow and reach people who don't know Jesus today? Um, and those are the types of questions that you want to ask. So I feel like when, when churches in transition do some of those things, it contributes to their level of success. Um, and so when you're talking about transitions, um, and unknowns with that, you can also expect that everybody, if the org org chart starts to make some change, um, it's possible that somebody who did a role in the past doesn't need to do that role anymore. Um, I can look at my, well, and the military is great about this because in the military, every two to three years, you get a new job. And most of the time you, you do what's called a PCS, which is military jargon for permanent change of station, where you get orders and you get a U-Haul and you move to a new assignment at a new base. And it becomes a way of life in the military. Unfortunately, churches, we tend to cling to things like, oh, well, 
no, I do that with the youth department. That's my little baby mm -hmm. project. And I think what churches are not good at is being willing to say, okay, I'm here to serve the whole of this local church. Recently, I've been serving in the youth team, but I might need to serve or volunteer over here um, in order to contribute in the future. And so releasing and letting go of those things as congregants, as staff team, and as, as leaders and board members, expecting that that to happen in some way. I do think there is a secret measurement for success and transitions that is unhealthy. And it is this, that everybody should keep their job and keep doing the things they're doing. And everybody who was a part of the church a year ago should still be part of a church now. And I'm not saying I think it's healthy when people leave. That's, that's just the wrong way to think about it. Um, I just think we have to be willing to say, hey, does God ask people to do different things, to play different roles on a team, to grow in different ways over the course of their lifetime? I think we would all agree the answer is yes. Is it possible then when we have leadership transitions in the church that we need to surrender the control we have of a plan, a program, or, or maybe even a little fiefdom and to say, I'm here to help this organization stay on mission and do really well? How do I need to serve? And if we can approach that, if we can expect those things, if we can give grace to those things and be willing to be open-handed about those things, then those are all things that will lead to a better transition. Sean, I love that, that you could articulate that, that myth so clearly. And you, you did say, you know, there is the expectation that because we did it right, everybody who was here 24 months ago will, will still be here. Um, you know that that's not always the case. And obviously some people leave in a manner that is destructive and divisive and unhealthy. There are other people mm -hmm. who love the church. They are grateful for the new leadership, but for whatever reason, just they can't support it wholeheartedly and it doesn't feel fair to stay. Do you, yeah. do you have advice for people on, on how to leave well, if they really do feel like they're at that tipping point? Yeah, I think that's great. It, Cause if you need to leave, there could be different sources of why some of them may be personal. Um, you may have had a strong personal relationship with the outgoing lead pastor, and you may have really enjoyed their preaching style. You may have almost no relationship with the new coming pastor and the way they preach is, is odd to you. So those things, those aren't necessarily bad. I think you need to ask and say, do we feel called to stay here and support this new leader in this way, or is God asking, is, is God putting up our antennas to a potential transition of our own? So the heart behind those types of questions and prayer behind those questions is important before there's ever any language spoken out loud about it. And if you can get there, if you're not leaving disgruntled with your feathers ruffled over things, right. if you're leaving with the heart behind it being, we love this church, um, but we, we, we need something different for us. And here's why. And we, and we prayed about it and we believe God's in it. Then I think being able to, um, leave with love, leave with integrity, those types of things, um, be able to bless the church you're leaving, um, and, you know, I would even say, keep in mind, I see it happen a lot where people leave because they're upset over something and a year later they're back. 
right. they kind of have their tail between their legs because they know they didn't leave well. So, so right. don't see it as a little C church, see it as a part of the big C church. Even if you don't love the style of preaching or the style of leadership that the new pastor has or the new leadership team has, you can still honor them and celebrate them and cheer them on saying, we love that you've been called to serve the church and that you've said yes to that call, um, even though we don't feel like this is where we need to be in in the near future. I think those types of things and the source of, of those, it's not disgruntledness. It's an yeah. openness. And the other thing I would say is, look, you need to keep tithing to a church. If you cannot tithe to a church, which is giving to the general fund, right? Unrestricted giving. If you, if you are labeling your gift, there's a sense of control in your finances. Mm. Um, you need to keep tithing to the general fund of the church, because then you're trusting leadership to decide where those dollars need to go to move the mission of the church forward. And if you can't do that, deal with it, deal with that, like start praying about it, right. get wise counsel about it. Don't hide that and don't let it, don't just stop giving to the church you're at and, and stay there, like deal with what's behind that, but do it in a healthy way. Sure. I, and I love the fact that you named that, Sean, because, you know, we, we've often heard the Lord loves a cheerful giver. I've recently learned in the last years, the Lord also loves a cheerful attender. If I can't give cheerfully and if I can't attend cheerfully, that is not necessarily a, an excuse to leave. It's a right moment for discernment to be able to say, all right, Lord, what is, what do you need to teach me about me before? What is it that you need me to rail against that somebody else is doing wrong and screwing up? Yeah, exactly. It's, I think the way you said it is as well as I've ever heard it verbalized is that it's not an excuse to leave. It's a reason for discernment. Yeah. Biblical discernment. So there, there seems to be a very thin line between chronic complaint and legitimate lament. Like there, there are people who they have a new leader, somebody stole their cheese. It's things are there. It's a little disorienting. It's okay to say, man, I'm really grieving what I lost it is not okay to say this clown doesn't know what they're doing. I hate this place. I'm leaving. You should leave too. What, what insight do you have for people who God could be leading to lament, but are currently being tempted to complain? Yeah. Well, okay. I would, this, this one will be pretty short. I would just say um, if that, if you think that might be you or somebody, you know, that you want to point to listen to this podcast, um, I'm going to put on my expert hat for a moment. Just trust me that I'm an outside. Like I have no, I have no stake in this um, deal that you're enduring, but as an outside expert, I would just say this, it's my opinion. If you're turning into a chronic complainer that has way more to do with you than it does the new leadership just sit in that for a few days or a few weeks um, that an outside expert is actually saying it's more your problem than it is the problem of, of, lead, of leadership. Now I'm not saying they're perfect. Okay. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying that would be my assessment of situations like that more often than not. But, but again, I, I love that you were able to articulate our, our just very human and very broken and very pervasive need for control. 
to control worship styles, to control service times, to control how my giving is utilized. And, and you're right, there's, there's, there's nothing New Testamently, it's just a phrase I'm inventing, uh, biblical about that. That's, it's very human, it's very individualistic, it's very self-driven, but it's, but it's, not, it's not community lifting, it's not gospel promoting, it's not, it's not Jesus proclaiming. Yeah, it's, it's very consumeristic. A word for church leaders um, thinking about this, whether you're on staff and leadership or board, um, elder level leadership is um, often the best thing you can do when you feel like there's some disgruntledness and maybe some chronic complaining going on is um, figure out what's at the source of that, right? Let's just say um, you, you might feel like it's everybody, but the truth is it's probably five or 10 people. Mm-hmm. Um, figure out who is the most influential of those five or 10 people meet with them one-on-one and win them over, right? Like love them and win them over. Because if you can find out who the most influential people in the complainer group are and you win them over, everybody else will come with them. It's great. I, I forget it. I don't know if it was Shackleton or somebody else who is leading some very dangerous expedition, but the rumor was that the way that he mutiny proofed his crew is that he would take the most divisive person and make sure that they slept in his tent, like to, to bring them all the way in and be able to say like, Hey, pr- if prejudice dies with exposure, we're going to maximize the exposure that we have with one another. And we're going to figure this thing out. Yeah. And honestly, I think, uh, so there's some practical w- just wisdom in that, but there's also like a God factor in, in that, in terms of unity, because this is what I would want everybody to realize is unity comes from sacrifice. It comes from letting go, right? So when Jesus says, I want my church to be unified together, like I'm unified with the father, that's the example. He then turns around the very next chapter, John, and goes through torture, arrest and torture, betrayal, arrest, torture, and then the next chapter after that, death and crucifixion. So for him to remain unified, it meant like not my will, but your will, right? He had that draw because he was fully God and fully human. He had that draw to be selfish right? because he was fully human. He felt that but he completely surrendered that and, and sacrificed that, which physically, mentally, emotionally was painful. So for us to be unified, we're going to go through some things that are painful. And when you have leadership engaging with the heart of the naysayers and figuring out how to work together, that's not just good practical wisdom. It's demonstrating what it takes to stay unified. If it comes easy, it's uniformity. It's not you. Great. Those are great, great words. Sean, thanks so much for your time today. Also, thank you for your service. Uh, congrats on your upcoming re- retirement. Hey, thank you. Uh, we're, we're grateful for what, what you and your family have sacrificed for our well-being as a nation. And thanks for the in- incredible work that you're doing at Ascent Leader. For people who want to find out more about your work, want to learn more about it, wh- where should they go? Theascentleader.org is our website. And if you're on social, the Ascent Leader is our Instagram handle. I don't think we're on any other social platforms um, necessarily. So those would be the two best ways. Great. Sean, thanks again for your time. Appreciate your wisdom. God bless. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, 
community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.